0: welcome uh, i'm pastor chris lewis uh, one of the pastors around here it's good to see you all here and a welcome to grand avenue we're glad to have you wherever you are today and uh, let me just say real quickly before we get into the Word of God, uh, the last nine weeks we've been raising money for church planting, uh, both uh, Ireland here in our neighborhood and around this nation, uh, internationally. And I want to just congratulate you. Over the last nine weeks, you've given nearly a hundred thousand uh, dollars towards this. And so, yeah, you can you can clap for that. That's a that's a that's <laughs> worth clapping over. God has been good to us, and I just want to. Uh, thank you for your generosity. At same, uh, same time, I want to challenge you. Um, about $160,000 worth of envelopes were taken off the walls if you're here the last uh, few weeks. And so if you're like, man, I haven't been able to fulfill mine yet, uh, don't worry about it. Lots of people haven't. My wife and I haven't filled ours yet, and we're still sort of plugging away at it. And we're going to do that, uh, but by God's grace. So if you haven't done that, that's okay. And uh, just keep bringing the money in. That's fine. If you made that commitment, I want to encourage you to keep it and uh, that we'd be faithful. Because listen, again, we're we're not keeping one dime of this money. Every bit of this is going out from here uh, to ch- uh, to, uh, to plant uh, gospel-centered uh, churches, uh, both here and around the world. And that's what we want to be about. So uh, help us in that. And thank you for your help with that. And um, uh, we're grateful and we're excited to see what, uh, what God will do. Okay, grab your Bibles. Let's go to Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8. Uh, now, one of the sort of core uh, beliefs we have around here as a staff, uh, as a church. One of the things that has been true of us, certainly over the last eleven years, has been that we are we have made a commitment to what's called expository preaching. All that means is that what we're going to do is we're going to preach book by book, verse by verse, line by line through Scripture, and we do that for uh, several reasons. There's lots of things I could go into why I think that's the proper way of preaching. So sometimes we preach topically, at say Christmas Day or. An Easter things like that but predominantly we're going to spend time just walking through a book together and we do that because we understand from scripture that God's word is inspired there's no other book in the world that can say that I'm not saying it's just you know you know uh, the Paul McCartney is inspired or whatever I'm not talking about that kind of thing there's a divine inspiration that God gives it's infallible it's without error it's inerrant it's a supernatural book so that when the Word of God is preached, the voice of God is heard, the people of God hear that, and it changes people. And this is absolutely foundational to who we are as a church. But the other reason we do it uh, is because if we didn't preach expositionally, we would intentionally avoid hard places in Scripture. I know I would. Because right? there's a whole lot of places I'd be like, you know what, let's just pass that. Like, for example, Daniel 8 through 12, Right? <laughs> You'd rather just go, let's stop at six and move on, right? Let's go to something else that feels a little more relevant or whatever. And yet what we have to do is back up and go, if this is inspired of God, if God spoke these words, if these are something God wanted to be included in the Christian canon, then that must mean that there is, there is life in this. There is something that God wants us to hear. There's some lesson that we would not get if we went anywhere else in Scripture. And so we must do this, right? We may feel like, oh, this is like, you know, sometimes it's hard to do that, but we must do this. God wants us to understand something. So we get to Daniel chapter 8, and Daniel is filled with dreams and visions, right? I mean, this is a major part of the book, and chapter 8 is no different. Daniel has another vision. He has another dream, and he has an, gets an interpretation of the dream. So it's the two halves. Once again, dream, interpretation, okay? And it's this apocalyptic dream. That is, that it's this unveiling of the end of the world, of the end times, of the last days. And that's what's going on in in chapter 8 again. So let's start reading, and I want to just read you the first couple of verses, and then we're going to kind of go through this methodically. But let's start reading in Daniel chapter 8, verse 1. And just listen to what happens here. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, A vision appeared to me, Daniel, after which appeared to me at the first, and I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel. Uh, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. Now, notice how many times he says, saw, I saw, I saw, I saw. He is getting a 4K, if you will, vision, this, this incredibly detailed vision. And there's some things I want you to notice about the opening the, these opening verses. First of all, notice he says, here's the time I was in. This is during the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. Okay, now, now, follow me here, because if you have not been here, or even if you have, listen to how this goes. From chapter 1, we start off in who's in power, a guy named Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is the ruler of the, of the Babylonian Empire, Okay, and he's there until his son or some, some progeny of his named Belshazzar comes and takes power. And then Pastor Shane preached a few weeks ago and told us how Belshazzar got thrown out of power. The writing, Mene, Mene, Tekel and Parson, appear on the wall with a human hand. They freak out as you would and I would. And they, what does this mean? They call Daniel. Daniel says, here's what it means. It means basically that your kingdom is over. Your time is up. It's over. You're going to die, Belshazzar. Get ready. And that's exactly what happens. In fact, if you go back to chapter 5, and verse 30, it says, that very night the Chaldean king was killed and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, right? So this is what's happened. Now, what I want you to hear is this. This vision in chapter 8 is before chapter 5. And that's the first thing. That's an important thing. Keep that in mind. Liberal scholars will say, will say chapter 8 has such specificity that there is no way that Daniel got this vision before it happened, Okay. So that ought to clue you that some things are going to happen here in chapter 8. Now, the other thing I want you to notice about chapter 8 is notice that Daniel tells us exactly where he is. I got a vision, and in the vision, I'm in Susa, which is kind of the summer palace for the king, and I'm not only at Susa, in that general region, I'm down on the bank of the Ulai Canal, like I'm, I'm right here. Here's the GPS spot that I am. Now, this is very different than chapter 7. Remember in chapter 7, he just says, I got this vision, and there was a great sea. Where? We have no idea, because there's no seas in that region, right, that were within striking distance of Daniel anyways is I got this great vision, and these monsters came up out of, out of the, the sea, this underworld, this underbelly, the upside-down, Stranger Things freaks, right? I mean, there's, this is what's going on here, this strange moment where, where the underworld is coming into our world. And remember, Daniel then goes on to say, there's these four beasts, and he begins to describe beasts. And a lot of people, what we said is when they get to chapter 7, they go, okay, the key to chapter 7 is if I can figure out who each beast is if I can identify that person or that kingdom in history then I can figure out chapter 7 we said that's not what chapter 7 is about chapter 7 is giving you this overview of human histories there will always be beasts there will always be monsters there will always be horns with eyes coming after the people of God trying to persecute you harass you it's this general overview of human history but then we get to chapter 8 and it turns really specific so Daniel goes, I'm here in this exact location, which begins to clue us that maybe chapter eight is going to be different. Maybe we're going to get some specificity in chapter eight that we didn't get in chapter seven. Okay? And so this is what this is what we're going to see happen. Okay. So so maybe, maybe, so when we get to chapter eight, things start to get a little more specific because I think perhaps what Daniel is doing is, okay, God, if this is the overarching sort of meta-narrative of, 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 of the history of the world, that your people are always going to face persecution and harassment and all these kind of things, if that's going to happen, God, how do I know that those general things are going to happen? And God says, I'll tell you how you know, I'm going to tell you the story. I'm going to give you a little piece of the story, and I'm going to give you such incredible specificity that people following you, will be able to look back and say these things that God talked about in chapter eight actually took place. And they're going to see them in vivid color. So that's what chapter eight does. Chapter eight helps Daniel, helps us, helps Israel when we ask, does God really know the future? Does God really have a control of human history? God sort of goes, okay, I'm taking you from up here, down, and I'm going to show you one little area, and I'm going to show you how I controlled this, how I am sovereign over this part of the story. Now here's what's happening. God's going to say to Daniel, he'd say to us, I'm the same God that controls history, and I'm the same God that controls your life. The same God who's writing the story of the world, the entire world, and every inhabitant in that world is writing your story. Like, now this is mind-blowing, isn't it? Right? How can God do that? How can God write every story from beginning to end? Not only just sort of, I'm going to give the principles, the big markers along the historical narrative of our world. No, I'm going to get down into every little nitty gritty detail. And it's because God is a master story writer. God is absolutely, now this should not surprise us. First of all, he's God, okay? We all get this who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor, who can give a gift to him that he might be repaid. This is God we're talking about, who knows the beginning from the end. He knows it all, and he knows it all in specific detail. Now, we have some human sort of analogies to this, right? Many of you are Harry Potter fans, right? And if you know the story, J.K. Rowling says, I'm riding on a train, and Harry Potter pops into my head, she says, fully formed. So if you're a Harry Potter nerd, then you've read books one through seven, and you know that there are things that she writes about in book one that don't find their conclusion until book seven. She knows the entire story before she starts writing. Now, if J.K. Rowling can do that, then God can write all the details of human history. God can get down into your life and my life, and he knows all the little tiny details. He's saying to Daniel, he's saying to Israel, he's saying to Chris Lewis, and to all of us, he's saying, look, if I know these kinds of details, you can trust me. I mean, think of God saying to Daniel, Daniel, I'm going to give you a pre-publication copy of chapter five. Just let you read it. i gonna give you all these little details. I'm going to show you that what I say is going to happen in an overarching way is going to happen in a specific way. And so you can trust me. Okay, so I want to show you three things that we learn about our sovereign Lord. And then I want to give you five takeaways for this, okay? So here's the first thing I want you to see. What does God show Daniel? He says, first of all, our sovereign God predicted the rise of the Medo-Persian Empire. So go to verse 3. Daniel says, I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. And okay, so he's in Susa, Babylon. This is where he is. He finds himself in the middle of Babylon. It had two horns, and both horns were high. One was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. Okay, so here again, we've got a ram. We've got a bizarre-looking ram. we got a ram with sort of a smaller, a little horn, and one that's higher than the other. And, and he comes on the scene at the Ulai Canal, and nobody can stand before him, and he charges every which way, and nothing can stop him. Now, what's he talking about? Now, here's where I told you. We're going to start getting specific. Unlike chapter 7, chapter 8 gives us a lot more specificity. So we're going to do this... With, with all this. Now flip the page and look at chapter 8, verse 20. Now he goes to Gabriel. Gabriel the angel appears to him because God's going to say, Gabriel, go down and tell him. He has no idea what's going on. This is a bizarre dream, so help him understand the dream. So Gabriel comes and says, as for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. Okay, so there we go. Now we're not guessing. We're not like, oh man, who's this kingdom? What's going on here? No, he's saying, this is exactly who it is. So what happens is the Medes and the Persians come on the scene and what do they do? They take over Babylon, right? Remember remember chapter five, verse 30? That very night, Belshazzar dies and God gives the kingdom to, 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 to Darius, the Mede. So there you go it happens it actually happens exactly but we also know from history that there was this other part of the empire the persians you're going to read about cyrus the king other places here in daniel so cyrus the king of persia darius the king of the medes and together they conquer what was the former babylon now why though is one horn larger than the other because The Persian Empire was much stronger. Interestingly, by the way, the Persians marched under the banner of Aram. That was their banner. And so here they are. They're this incredibly dominant, militaristic power. Nothing stands in their way, and they begin to expand to the north and the south and the west. So everything that God says is going to happen, happens. They appear unstoppable. They appear utterly unbeatable until God sends a goat, a male goat, and a goat unlike anything the world had ever seen up to this point. And that's the second thing I want you to see: that our sovereign God predicted the rise of Greece, the rise and fall of Greece, and um, and Alexander the Great. Okay, so so now watch this. Go go back to chapter five or chapter eight, verse five. Okay, so. He sees this, and he says, verse 5, As I was considering, behold, a male goat. So you got the ram is on the scene, but here comes a male goat. He comes from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between its eyes. These are bizarre animals. And he came to the ram with two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him with powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him. He struck the ram, broke his two horns, and the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken. Instead, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Okay, so there again, you got a ram, Okay, and he's he seems to be controlling everything. Medo-Persia is in control of this former Babylonian empire, and then appears a goat with a conspicuous horn. He flies from the west; his feet don't even touch the ground. Just rapid. This is like blitzkrieg, right? Takes him over, stamps him to the ground, and he's done. Who are we talking about? Well, go back to verse 21, and the goat is the king of Greece. There we go. I'm going to tell you I'm going to give you the specifics. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. Okay, so 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 what's happening here? We got Greece. Now we know what nation this is talking about. And there's this conspicuous horn, there's this great horn, it's the first king and there is there is I would say nearly, I didn't find one example of a scholar that disagrees that what this is referring to is Alexander the Great. Because if you know anything about Alexander the Great, I'm sure you've heard that name, if if not studied him in school, then you know that he had this blitzkrieg across from Greece that stretched through Turkey, through Iran, Iraq, and into parts of India where he absolutely took over everything. Nothing could stand. And in fact, um, in 334 BC, we know at a river remember he's at the uli canal we know that at a river alexander's forces face up against the medes and the persians he has it's called the river granicus he has 35,000 men fighting for him. They have 100,000 men fighting for them. They, he, Alexander the Great's forces plunge into the river to go after them, and it's such a stunning victory that apparently the, the Medes and the Persians lose 20,000 men in one battle. Alexander loses 100. It was amazing, right? Total victory happens around 331 B.C., when Alexander is just sweeping from the west to the east, just taking out everything. I mean, sort of looping around down into Egypt and back out. He's just, he's conquering the world. This, Alexander was a phenom. He was like a wonder kid, right? He was this kind of, uh, by the age of 33, he had conquered the known world. And legend has it that he wept one time after he had conquered the known world because there was no lands left to conquer. Right? I mean, he was like, There's just, I'm, I'm done. I got nothing left to do. And this is what he did. He, he took it over and the lights go out on the ram. Long live the goat, right? So the goat is now going to prosper. And if you read history, you know that, that, that Alexander does all this again by the time he's 33 and then he dies unexpectedly. Nobody knows why. Was it a disease? Did he pick up typhoid fever? What was it? We don't know. We just know that the large horn was snapped off at its youth while it was still young, while it was still at the zenith of its power. This is exactly what happens. This is exactly what Daniel saw and what the angel Gabriel comes and says, this is what's going to happen. Now, here's what's amazing to me. We're talking about Alexander the Great here, already prophesied in Scripture about 300 years before he comes on the the scene. Now, God, who knows human history, knows how influential Alexander the Great will be on the entire world. Okay, I I believe this. God knew that he would have this kind of influence. And Alexander the Great didn't just want to conquer lands. He wanted to spread with an evangelistic fervor the Greek culture to the world. So that even today, we are influenced in the West by Greek culture. We have words, we have culture, we have politics. I mean, this word politics is a Greek word, right? This idea that somehow it all comes from them. And this most influential of men in all of human history gets about four verses in the Bible. Now, what does that tell you? In God's economy, he's a footnote. In God's economy, he's not that important. Why? Because he looks and says, what I want to focus on in Scripture is how the world impacts my people, this small little group called the Israelites that become the Christians, right? I want to focus on them and I want to show you how how the culture, how everything affects them. I want to show how persecution affects them. And this is exactly what happens. A little horn comes on the scene, a little horn. I'm going I'm to focus on this. So this is the third thing, you see, that our sovereign God predicted the rise and the fall of Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Okay, so, so here's the little horn. So now let's go back, look at verse 8, and watch what happens. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken. Okay, so I still got the goat, but the horn snapped off, right? So Alexander's gone, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven, all around the globe, if you will, sort of geographically spread out. Out of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven. Some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken from him. Now take note of this. And the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression and it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Okay, there's the dream. Now turn over to verse 22. Verse 22. And here, the angel Gabriel tells him the interpretation. As for the horn that was broken, in place of it, which uh, uh, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation. Okay, where are we? We have got Greece, we got Alexander the Great. Okay, um, they'll 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 uh, they'll arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints." By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind, he shall become great. without warning, He shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against a prince of princes and shall be broken. But by no human hand. Now, may I pay attention to that. He will be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told to me is true, but seal up the vision for it refers to many days from now, okay? So. You got, here's the story, you got a long horn, gets snapped off. In its place, four horns grow up. Okay, so let me, let me tell you a little bit about history. Alexander dies, and what happens to the kingdom of Greece? It gets, it, his territory gets divided up among four generals. And these generals are powerful, but not the same power. Remember that? One of those generals is a guy by the name of Seleucus. Okay, Seleucus will control the biggest swath of Alexander's former territory, and he he will then die, and over the generations, that will be handed down. But a little horn grows up, okay? Out of that grows a little horn. Now, what happened? We've got, we've got somebody who comes into power who's not quite as powerful, but it's this little horn and, and it grows up and more is written in chapter eight. This is fascinating. More is written in chapter eight about the little horn than of anything else more about more than the ram more than the other long conspicuous horn none of that is what really matters one half of all of chapter eight is about this little horn he emerges and he grows and it says he grows towards the south which is egypt he grows towards the east which is persia and he grows towards what daniel sees and what he hears is the glorious land that's israel and we know that Antiochus did exactly that. He went into Persia, he went into Egypt, he went into the land of Israel. And what we know is that, that that he he comes on the scene in about 175 BC. He did not, he was not the rightful heir, but through deceit, through sort of the understanding of riddles, he came into power and he usurped it from his nephew, who was the rightful heir. And then he goes about coming into Palestine, coming into Israel, and he begins to brutally, brutally persecute the people of God. In fact, you read verses 10 through 14, and you get a play-by-play of the kinds of persecution that he will bring. In fact, he says he says. Um, he grew in power and pride. Look at verse 10. It says it grew even to the host of heaven. Some of the hosts, some of the stars, it threw down to the ground, it trampled on. It became great even as the, as the prince of the host. So in other words, he exalted himself. He became great in his own eyes. He then gave himself the name epiphanies. Now we, we have the word epiphany. We use the word epiphany in, in our culture and it just means a manifestation or a vision of God. What do you think he's saying? I am Antiochus IV. I am the vision of God. I mean, a a literal translation of the Greek would be Antiochus IV, the illustrious God. This is who I am. I'm exalting myself to heaven. He claims equality with God. And then he begins to go about a systematic persecution of God's people. So what does he do? He comes into Israel, and he bans any kind of temple sacrifice. In fact, he goes into the temple, and if you know anything about Jewish history and clean and unclean animals, a pig is an unclean animal, he sacrifices a pig on the altar in the Jewish temple. He sets up an idol, an image of Zeus in the most holy part of the temple, the Holy of Holies. He puts it in there. He eventually gets to a place where he's sacrificing humans inside of the temple. He, he burns copies of scripture. He at one point slaughters 40,000 Jews in three days. He goes down to Egypt to try to beat them, 168 BC. He comes back. He's angry because he didn't beat them. So he takes it on the Jews and he slaughters a bunch of them who are observing the Sabbath that day. He bans circumcision, crucial to the Jewish way of life. He bans clean meats and requires people to eat uh, unclean meats. And over and over again, this keeps happening. He sets up his own high priest. In fact, you'll get to the New Testament, and some of the background of what's happening in the New Testament is right here. Because what happens is you've got this weird thing going on with the high priesthood in Jesus' time. It had become so corrupt and so politicized, it was no longer they were no longer the heirs of Aaron or Levi right out of that tribe, which they were supposed to be. They'd lost that a long time ago. Now it was a political appointment. And so the Seleucid and the Ptolemaic Empire sort of battle back and forth. Two of these four general families that, that battle back and forth. This is what's going on. This is some of the background here. Now, why is this happening? Well, look at verse 12. A host will be given over it together with the regular burnt offering. He stops the burnt offering because of transgression. And then, and then skip over to verse 23. He says, and at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors, plural, have reached their limit, a king of bold face will arise. Okay, so so let me get you the order. It's happening because of transgression. It's happening because this, this group of transgressors, after they have reached their limit of, of sin, God's finally, I'm done with this, a king of bold face arises. Antiochus IV, Epiphanes. So whose sin has caused the people of God to be thrown into exile, to be tortured, to be brutalized, to be persecuted? Theirs. So a lot of people think, oh, this is Antiochus' rebellion. It's him that's causing the problem here. No. No, it's the people of God who are sinning and therefore God has thrown them not into exile in another country. God comes and says, I'm going to make you an exile right in your own land because of your sin. Listen to how Ian de Guied says it. He says, "...it is certainly true that at times the sovereign Lord may bring an enemy against his people in order to display his own glory when they have not sinned against him. Yet he would hardly give his people and sanctuary over into the hand of his enemy except on account of their own sin. This was the case in Daniel's own day. Why is Daniel in, in, in Babylon?" Because his people sin and were taken into exile. And what Daniel saw in chapter 8 was a future repetition of the sin and judgment of God's people that had led to the fall of Jerusalem to Nebuchadnezzar. He's saying, Daniel, it's going to happen again. The people are not going to hear. They are going to repeat what you're learning and how you're getting out of exile and why you were brought into exile in the first. They're going to repeat it over and over again. And it's going to cause them, finally, their transgressions are going to fill up. And I'm going to send this brutal tyrant among them that's going to, that's going to, 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 to come against them. Listen, sin has terrible consequences. We don't mess around with sin. Oh, God is gracious. God will just forgive and, 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 and none of that. I mean, this is, this is Romans 6. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And Paul says in the most negative way he can, by no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that if you've been baptized into Christ Jesus, you've been baptized into his death, you've been buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that you may walk in newness of life, not in sin, And when we sin and we think we can sin with impunity, God says, do not be deceived. I will not be mocked. What a man sows, he will reap. What a nation sows, they will reap. What the people of God sow, they will reap. God says, I will bring this upon you. And this is exactly what's happening. Now, how long is this going to last? Look at verse 14 he said to me for 23, the answer to that question, 2300 evenings and mornings. Now, depending on how you measure this, he could be talking about 2300 days, okay, right? Or 2300 evenings and mornings means you'd slash that in half and you'd get to about 1650 days. So you're either at somewhere around seven years or somewhere around three and a half years. So what do we do with that? Well, Seven years is about the time of Antiochus IV Epiphanes' persecution of the people. It was right around seven years. Three and a half years is about the time of the desecration, his desecration of the temple and the re-cleansing of the temple that happened three and a half years later. Here's what we do know. Antiochus IV and the Seleucids that he was a part of there is a revolt that happens in Jerusalem and it's called the Maccabean revolt you can read about this there's actually a book called Maccabees it's not part of the bible but it's it's Jewish history and in Maccabees, we read that they, they pushed the Seleucid forces out of Jerusalem. And in fact, that day is still celebrated almost around Christmas time for, for the, uh, the, the, the Jews. And uh, he pushed the, 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 Ma- the, the, the Seleucid forces out of Jerusalem and took control back of, of Jerusalem and, and the temple and all of that. Reinstituted the sacrifices and everything. But here's what's interesting. Remember, it says. In, uh, in chapter 8, it says, um, Without warning, verse 25, he shall destroy many. He shall rise up even against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken but by no human hand. So interestingly, we don't really know how um, Antiochus died. But Maccabees actually records something. And listen to part of what it says in the book of Second Maccabees, chapter nine, verses five through seven. They're talking about he's talking about um, Antiochus. And, he says, and so it came about that he Antiochus fell out of his chariot as it was rushing along. Why? Nobody shot him. Nobody pushed him. And the fall was so hard as to torture every limb of his body, broken, but by no human hand. See what God is doing. Like, do you see the specificity I'm giving you to help you understand, Daniel? You can trust me, understand people of God, you can trust me. So what do we learn from this? What are we supposed to, because this is a lot of history, a lot of trying to put numbers together and all that. What are we What are we supposed to take away from this? Let me Let me give you five things that I'd I'd like you to think about taking away from this. Number one is that understanding scripture requires divine assistance. So look at verse 15. I skipped over this, but look what happens to Daniel. Daniel gets done with this vision. He wakes up. He's like, I have no idea what I just saw. I saw a ram, weird horns. I saw a goat with weirder horns. They're slamming into each other. I don't know what's going on here. So when When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. Behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, and I called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. He was looking forward. He had no idea. And he says, I need divine assistance. Let me suggest to you, that's exactly what we do. I'm not saying say you need an angel to appear in your room. We now have both testaments. But the the Bible says to us that the natural man does not not, um, discern, understand the things of the Spirit because they're spiritually discerned. We cannot understand understand what scripture is trying to convey to us without supernatural divine assistance which is why every time you read your bible you ought to pause like david and say oh lord psalm 119 open my eyes that i might behold wondrous things from your law wondrous things from scripture because i can't understand what you want me to understand from scripture without your assistance The second thing is that understanding scripture helps us prepare for what's coming. I mean, God wants you to know this. God says, here's what's coming, people of God. I know history. I know there'll always be persecution. I know that until Jesus returns, this is going to be your lot. He gives us reality. God never blows smoke, right? He never, he's never sort of pulling punches. He never tries to give us this sort of fairy idea where everything's rainbows and unicorns. He says, This is the reality of your life. But hear me, I control human history. And nothing that befalls you is outside of my hand. I'm surprised by nothing. The third thing I think that understanding Scripture helps us know how to live. Turn over to chapter 8 and look at the last verse, verse 27. Daniel says, And I, Daniel, was overcome, and I lay sick for some days. This is a vivid, vivid image and vision that he was given. Then I rose, and I went about the king's business. But I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. I don't really know what this all means. I know God's in control, but what does Daniel do? He gets up and he goes about the king's business. See, see, we know a day is coming when God will put everything right. We know we live in a day when things are very troubling. We know that more persecution may be coming our way, but... So how do we live now? And look what Daniel does. He goes about the king's business. And I want to suggest to you, you ought to maybe make that king a capital K. The king. The king of kings. That what I'm called to do as a child of God, what I'm called to do as a Christian, is go about my business. Get up. Go to work. Be diligent. Live a holy life. Right? Be obedient to what I know God has commanded me to do. See what if I said to you? What if I said to you? What would you do? How would you live if you knew that next Sunday the world was over? What would you do? Like some of you like get in the bunker? Um, I'd start stocking up. I'd, I, what would you do? Somebody asked John Wesley that one time. I said, you know, Pastor Wesley, what, what would you do? And apparently he reached into his satchel and he opened up his notebook, his, his journal, and he began reading all of his appointments for the next week, where he had to preach, what he had to do, all the, all the errands he needed to run apparently, right? And he looked at the man and he said, this dear sir is what I would do. I just live my life. I'd keep living the way God calls me to live. I'd keep going to work. I'd keep serving people. I'd keep sharing my faith. I'd keep living. I mean, listen, you know what you know what this is? This this is this is Daniel saying, I went back to Jeremiah 29 that says, This is what you do, people in exile. You don't bury yourself in a bunker. You don't run away from the culture. You say, I'm gonna still be in it, even if I know the world is coming to an end. I'm gonna be a light in the midst of the dark, and I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna build houses. I'm gonna Plant vineyards, I'm gonna have children, I'm gonna raise those children, I'm gonna pray for this city. That's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna be about the king's business. That's what Daniel does. I'm gonna stay engaged until the last moment. The fourth thing I think you need to know is that God knows your future and is writing your story. Isn't that what we see here? God knows. I know the beginning from the end. I know the good and bad. I know the times of laughter and sorrow. I know every part of it. Nothing escapes. Listen, I promise you now, no matter what this week holds for you, no matter what email, phone call, circumstance comes into your life, hear me now and believe this when it happens. Nothing surprises God. Not one thing has escaped to his attention. He is in control of all of it. And he is working all things together for those who love God. This is what God's doing. Now listen, if God knows the beginning from the end, see, if God's saying, look, no matter what happens, Chris, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you. Listen, what you may face this week, what conversations, what emails, what texts, what, what things, what circumstances may face, I'm, not, I'm with you. I'm not going anywhere, Chris. I'm right here and I've been behind this all along. But you know what else this means? I think it means that God knows everything about my future which means he knows every sin I will commit. Psalm 139 says, before I was born, every day was numbered. Before a word ever crossed my lips, you knew it. The thoughts of my mind, you know them. You know all my actions. You know it in minute detail. God, now imagine this, husbands and wives. Imagine if you could look down the corridor of time and you could say, I know every single way that my spouse is going to sin against me. I'm going to see in advance all their neglect. I'm going to see in advance all their angry voices. I'm going to see in advance all the betrayal. I'm going to see in advance all of these things. How would you react? You know how God reacts? I'm not going anywhere. I love you. I'm going to send my son to die for you. I'm going to pay the price for all those sins. this, This is why... This is why that kind of covenant love is so mind-blowing for us. And when we hear that this is what a husband and wife are supposed to portray, and this, this is where it gets amazing. But let me give you one last thing. Persecution can never separate us from the love of God. Do you understand that? Doesn't matter what happens, Foothill. Doesn't matter if our country continues to sink into the mire and muck of sin and we have to bear the brunt of horrible persecution, doesn't matter if people don't love us, doesn't matter if we're hated and we're spit upon, does not matter. It will never, ever separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Right? Isn't this what Paul says? Right? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grab hold of that. Because that's the truth. doesn't matter. Our King is on the throne. And He is directing it all. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we thank you, God, for this word that, Lord, you are not just the God over the generalities of history, but all the little specifics. You are the God who not only knows the story of the world, you're the God who's writing the story of my life and all of our lives. And you care about every detail. You care about bills that can't be paid this week. You care about conflicts in the home. You care about children that have walked away from you. You care about roommates and the conflicts that might be there. You, you care about the laughter. You care about our jobs. All these details matter to you, God. And I thank you that you're a God where the psalmist can say, Men, what is man that you're mindful of him? Like, how is it that you even consider us? We are this small speck in the universe, and small little molecule on that speck and yet you love us God and we thank you for that I pray God that would give us hope this week I pray that we'd recognize that anything that comes our way this week God I have no idea what's going to happen in this room somebody may be facing a death somebody may be facing the loss of a job there there may be circumstances there may be persecutions that come what I do know is that none of it escapes your attention God, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Lord, you love us, and you're saying, I will never leave you nor forsake you. How powerful is that? God, you're, you're so gracious to us in spite of ourselves. As you look down the corridors of time, you know every sin I'm ever going to commit against you, and yet you right now agree to forgive because of what Jesus Christ has done. Father, I pray that more people today would run and find shelter in you. There is a day of wrath coming when because of transgression, because of our transgressions, the wrath of God will be poured out upon us and that we would run and find shelter in Jesus Christ. Forgiveness in Jesus Christ, mercy in Jesus Christ. Father, do that today. We love you. We thank you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.